I speak in the name of the living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please do sit down. I'd like to thank you for your very warm welcome and hospitality here while I've been with you this week. Um, and it's a great privilege to be here shortly after you have become one of our partners in the community of the Cross of Nails and the special relationship that we in Coventry Cathedral and you here in VTS now share. Um, and as part of this relationship, I'm delighted to take with me um, into Holy Week and Easter weekend as I walk through northern Iraq with some other people from Europe on a peace walk. Take with me a t-shirt that many of you have written prayers and signed as a sign of peace that I can take um, with me on this walk. I think the t-shirt will be here after the service. So if you haven't signed it and you would like to um, write a prayer or something on it, please do so. I think it'll mean a huge amount to the people there. There's a poem by a Northern Irish poet, Seamus Heaney, a part of which I want to share with you in response to our readings this morning. It's called Double Take and is part of The Cure at Troy. Here's an ex extract. Human beings suffer. They torture one another. They get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully right a wrong inflicted and endured. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then once in a lifetime, the longed for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a farther shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Call miracle self-healing, the utter self-revealing double take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain and lightning and storm and a God speaks from the sky, that means someone is listening, the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its turn. It means once in a lifetime that justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme that justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. Hope and history are what the Cross of Nails is all about. As a symbol of our and your joint commitment to work for peace and reconciliation, for taking note of God's history and our history, of who and what we have been, of whom we are in God's kingdom, in God's heart, in our Ministry of Reconciliation at Coventry Cathedral, we deal daily with hope and history. One of our core values in the community of the Cross of Nails, and I won't ask you to recite our three core values, I'll tell you the first one is healing the wounds of history. And St Michael's House, where we deliver our reconciliation programme at the Cathedral, bears the strapline, making space for hope to flourish healing the wounds of history and making space for hope. History and hope. Our ruined and rebuilt cathedral in Coventry and your ruined and rebuilt chapel here delineate history and hope. The destruction of the old churches and the hope of transformed 
reconciled life embodied in these buildings. The many stories we hear of conflict and reconciliation, of wounding and healing, are about history and hope. These two words are quite easy to say, aren't they? History and hope. How do we actually live those two words? As we prepare to enter Holy Week and the events about to unfold as we follow Jesus on the way, how do we really give ourselves? How do we really give ourselves to this work of making peace and reconciliation? How do we make the words we say here in church congruent with our actions when we go out through those doors at the end of the service? Lent and now preparing to enter the holiest of weeks is a time to reassess how we live. How can we, how do we take part in God's kingdom? The day after the bombing of Coventry Cathedral in 1940, into the arena of tangled metal and rubble and emotions walked Provost Howard, and he said those two words, Father, forgive. This was an acknowledgement that we are all of us in need of God's forgiveness, victim and perpetrator alike. And so our work of peace and reconciliation began. Provost Howard gave Coventry and the world a prophetic and a radical message in 1940. He prayed, Father, forgive. In 2017, we have seen already appalling and violent events around the world. Sweden is the latest, reminding us again of the depravity of which humanity is capable as we enter this holiest of weeks. I was struck recently by a translation by Erasmus of the prologue to John's Gospel. Instead of in the beginning was the word, Erasmus translates this as in the beginning was the conversation. In the beginning was the conversation. I know that there's much academic debate about the veracity of this translation, but never mind. Maybe one of you can enlighten me about that afterwards. But for now, let's stick with it. In the beginning was the conversation. Exactly. Because how can we live in isolation? How can we live without dialogue? How can we live out the gospel message of reconciliation if we do not listen to each other or to God? At its most basic, and it's a bit more than this, but at its most basic, reconciliation is about conversation, about whether and how we converse, about how we do relationship. It's about how and whether we have the conversation. We face in the world and in the church, as we know, many challenges, violent conflicts abound. Globalization means that we are more connected and yet I think we struggle to really converse and understand each other. We have so many, a multiplicity of ways of communicating through social media and Twitter and blogging and all the others, but we still need help, I think, to really hear each other's stories. As Christian people, whatever our own story, wherever we work and live, we are all called to take part in God's world and it's a struggle at times, as we know. Look at Jeremiah. 
We hear strong words from him in our reading today. Violence and destruction, panic lurks everywhere. How do we deal with the strength of our feelings, of our reactions to history, of our reactions to our world, to history in the making? This Lent and the coming holiest of weeks must be a time for deep reflection on our lives with God and with each other. A God-given time to reassess how we think and how we act on our history. What do we as Christians actually mean for the world today? We have new political eras all over the world, don't we? In Europe, here, in the Middle East, in the Global South. Seamus Heaney, even in the poem, says, history says, don't hope on this side of the grave. Pretty gloomy message, if we just stop there. Can hope and history rhyme in this world? Now is the time for us to decide. Do we stick with the world's answers? Or do we believe that the God who is always with us, who makes his covenant with us, who gives a light to the nations, changes everything? The poem goes on, believe that farther shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. So what do we believe about history and hope this Lent as we seek to respond to the violence and the panic around us? And goodness me, we need some hope today. We need these words of hope to be followed by actions today. In a world where exclusion masquerades as justice, where disunity and division are proclaimed as justice, where white gated communities trump cardboard shacks, where the colour of your skin or your gender or your sexuality can deny you justice. I'm tempted to say, stop the service. What are we doing sitting in here? What are we doing sitting inside this chapel when our world is on fire? Let's go out. Let's go out through those doors and take action. Where are our placards, our slogans, our passion? even. In the last weeks and months across the world, we have witnessed or even been part of demonstrations, people showing solidarity together in outrage at some political decisions or engaging in a battle of letters to the press, petitions, blogs, tweets, and so on. And yes, why not? Just a few weeks ago, the cathedral in Cape Town saw clergy and people outside on the steps demonstrating against the corruption and misuse of power in that nation, linking arms together, black and white, outside on the steps of the People's Cathedral, demonstrating not now against the apartheid government, but that's what it made me think of, demonstrating. And yes, why not? There is much injustice in the world, and even, yes, in the church. I wonder if we really expect ourselves our churches, our faith communities, to speak out to our nations, our communities, to ourselves even, to provide vision and vitality, meaning, purpose, justice towards each other. Demonstrating is not the only way. We do also need to sit in this chapel and worship God and pray and bring ourselves to this altar. We do, of course, need both. What we need is courageous discipleship. 
so we can steer our nation and our communities towards justice and peace and reconciliation and away from exclusion, conflict and division. When I was doing my um, PhD research in South Africa, I spent three months living and working among the still mainly racially divided communities in a small town in the Western Cape. I'd been working and journeying with this particular group for about three months and felt a huge debt of gratitude to them for their openness and their hospitality and their friendship. And over the last few weeks there, I'd been trying to think of a present, a gift I could give them to say thank you. But they were a diverse group of about 60 or 70 people. I couldn't think of the right thing to give them. So it seemed fitting in the end, and in fact, probably the best gift I could offer, to offer to hold a Eucharist, a communion service, for that hope and reconciliation process for those people and the communities that we had been working among. The timing of that Eucharist happened to coincide with a, 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 a farm workers' protests, vineyard workers' protests in the area. And they were asking for justice in housing, in wages, in dignity, whatever the colour of their skin. In the communion service, I wanted to embody and symbolise racial and community inclusivity in terms of space and people and the Eucharistic elements. And to those ends, I asked the, the brown or the coloured community if I could use a hall in their area. I asked my friend DV, a white Africana wine farmer, to bring some wine from his farm. And I asked another friend, Mama Namoy, from the Black Township, to bake the bread for the service. I knew she could bake well. I tasted her donuts earlier. The bread baked by Mama Namoy from the Black Township, the wine grown by DV in his white family vineyards, represented a sharing of gifts given and accepted as equals in that space. The body and blood of Christ were given and received, both tangibly and symbolically, with a powerful reminder of the past hurts transformed into the present move towards justice and reconciliation. The diverse body of Christ as the community present that day shared in these gifts as symbols of relationship, justice and peace. Pain, lament, anger, hurt were all brought to the altar, to the communion table. The pain of apartheid trauma, personal, private and communal hurts were brought and dealt with in the Eucharist, in the sharing of that bread and wine. Because I think the Eucharist highlights what is needed in a process of justice and reconciliation. It's a form of pilgrimage of reconciliation, if you like, in which a key moment is the sharing of the body and blood of Christ in an embodied symbol of gift, of sharing something actual, material, tangible of God. This is the moment of justice. God's gift and his justice are inextricably linked. There can be no reconciliation without justice. In his son's death and resurrection, in his body, God gives us this gift and shares his justice with us. And in this gift, we ourselves are enabled to receive and bear the gift of justice. That's the only way we can leave this chapel with justice, gifted to be witnesses of the gospel of Christ, 
to be disciples, to take action, having been broken and blessed, having been reconciled and thus enabled to go and reconcile. That is how and why we build bridges of peace. That is how we live with difference and celebrate diversity. That is how we live with gifts of joy and love and of hope. That is how and why we live the gospel. Kenyon Wright, one of my predecessors, former canon for reconciliation at Coventry Cathedral in the 70s, and if you like, the founding father of the community of the Cross of Nails, died in January and we held his memorial service in the cathedral in March. I uh, have been talking to his daughter, one of his daughters, Lindsay, over that period, and she said he was just about to write his autobiography, and he was going to call it Live, Love, Laugh. Live, Love, Laugh. Kenyon spent his life working for justice. At the end of this service, we are sent out to love and serve the Lord. Can we, can we love and serve with the passion and justice that God gives us? Can we live and love and laugh for the gospel? Because this is good news. You will look awfully serious. This is good news. Let's live and love and laugh. We're given a tremendous gift through Christ of a vision of a restored humanity where justice and love and peace reign. Let's celebrate it with the world, with all of God's children. I just want to finish with two very, very quick stories you'll be pleased to hear. First one is about Ian Paisley. Ian Paisley, erstwhile First Minister in Northern Ireland, who's um, now died. One of the most complex political leaders of our times, I think. Ian Paisley realised, albeit latterly, that looking backwards is not enough, that looking forward in relationship is vital. And moreover, he also realised, despite his huge gift in public speaking, that action is also required. Just a little story about him, which illustrates this understanding of the need both for worship and for action. He was preaching in his church in his inimitable style, there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, he boomed. A little old lady in the congregation put her hand up and said, but I haven't got any teeth. <laughs> And Ian Paisley said, teeth will be provided. <laughs> Rhetoric and action, they have to go together. The other story is about Steve Biko and his mother, Alice. You probably know Steve Biko, well-known anti-apartheid leader. And in 1977, he was brutally murdered while being held by the South African police. Steve and his mother Alice were talking shortly before his death and she was telling him how much she worried about him. She couldn't sleep at night until he got home for fear of him having been arrested and put in jail. He replied by reminding her that Jesus had come to redeem his people and set them free. She said impatiently, are you Jesus? Steve had gently answered her, no, I'm not, but I have the same job to do, and so do we. Amen. <laughs>